Welcome to the Risk Experience Podcast. Over the years, we've seen banks and other financial institutions diligently protect their customers' financial information. However, the introduction of open banking has raised data security concerns. The sharing of customers' financial information with third-party services through APIs that make open banking possible is the source of these security concerns. In today's episode, we shall be discussing the role one institution in particular is playing to protect customers' data within the financial services industry. I have here with me Don Cardinal, Managing Director of Financial Data Exchange. Thank you for joining the discussion today, Don. Well, thanks for having me, Frank. All right. Thank you very much. So to get started, can you tell us a bit about the Financial Data Exchange and what its objectives are? Absolutely. So we're a nonprofit standards body. The idea is we have a group of organizations that have come together. There'd be banks, brokerages, uh, data aggregators, uh, fintechs, and, and firms of all sizes, even consumer groups and academics who want to enable consumer-permissioned financial data sharing and working towards a common interoperable royalty-free standard for sharing that data. Right. I see. So is the formation of FDX at the behest of any particular regulator, or is it just the coming together of like-minded entities to achieve a common goal? That's a great question. And actually, no, it's not at the behest of any law or regulation. It's simply an acknowledgement in the marketplace that there is a need for doing this. Let me give a, a little background. Uh, for almost 25 years now, um, apps have been able to scrape data out of uh, online banking and mobile banking sites uh, by simply writing scripts and using customers' IDs and passwords to do that. Um, it's been around for quite a long while. Right. However, in the world of sharing IDs and passwords in today's cyber-aware world, probably not the best practice. Exactly. In addition, writing scripts to pound against sites to pull data uh, leads to uh, inaccurate data or uh, can lead to uneven data. And it also was a tremendous hardware burden on the banks providing those, those sites. So wouldn't it be great if you could still have the same functionality in that app in your phone and still have access to that data to do wonderful things, but never have to give up your ID or password? Exactly. Well, great. And what if it was free? How cool is that? Absolutely. That is very impressive. So why is the role of FDX important now in the era of open banking and the associated data security concerns? Well, we estimate there are somewhere around 100 million IDs and passwords floating around for North American uh, customers. And in today's day and age, that's just not the most optimal way of doing business. If you can go to a system where you never had to have those IDs or passwords floating around, you can reduce the risk to the whole ecosystem. Because again, it's uh, anything we can do to take risk out of the flow, I think benefits everyone. Exactly. And it also, from a cyber posture, makes it a little bit easier. If you move away from using a script to hit the front door, if you hit the web page, and actually move that traffic to an API, an application programming interface, think of it as a, a special loading dock for your customers who are listening. Now the people defending the front door um, from malicious traffic and who also serve legitimate traffic have a binary state. Instead of yes, no, maybe, it's yes and no. Yes and no is a lot easier to defend. Exactly. So by making this migration, we've reduced the risk to the ecosystem by getting Helloic credentials out. We've reduced the cyber risk by making the defense a little bit easier. And oh, by the way, these APIs have B2B or business-to-business level enterprise-grade security. Right. Why? Because they're set up just like every other vendor connection. So we've improved everyone's cyber posture, their risk and privacy posture, Oh, by the way, since we're not-for-profit, there's no cost. Did I mention it was free? Right, exactly. 
So in terms of membership, my understanding is that the Financial Data Exchange comprises members from financial services and fintech companies involved in account aggregation services. These members are engaged in the development of these standards through FDX working groups. Can you give us some more details on the structure of FDX and how it operates? Sure. Um, you know, common misnomers. We have over 115 member organizations. Right. Um, and as I mentioned in the intro, we have everything, everyone involved in the data chain or in the ecosystem is welcome. We have a very large tent. And so it, this control and structure is based from the board, through the committees and the working groups. Um, and we are very diligent about making sure both the data requesters and the data providers, typically banks, brokerages, insurance companies and utilities, were balanced. And that is, we had equal representation and equal voice on both sides of the equation. And that's referenced all the way through the organization. In addition, being an engineering focused organization, um, we decided every firm in the working groups had the same vote. And that is, it doesn't matter if it's Don and Frank's FinTech in a garage (laughs) or a multinational universal FI, um, every firm has the same size vote. Right. Are there different tiers of membership? There's just really the two. Um, okay. If you're on our board of directors, we ask a little more of our board in terms of support as far as resources, um, not just financial, but also staffing some of the committees and, and, and being involved. But uh, within our general membership, uh, it's based, the financial request is based on revenue. So the very smallest tier, the smallest uh, fintechs, it's uh, $1,000 a year to join if you're a very big uh, firm that's not on our board, it's a little bit more than that. That's best practice between other groups like FIDO and Bluetooth and FSISAC. So it's the model that works for us. Right, I see. So does a particular entity have to be a member of FDX to benefit from these standards you are working on? Great question. And the answer is no, you do not have to join FDX to use the FDX API. We're a not-for-profit, so we're not selling anything. Yeah. You do come to our website. Uh, we do ask you to click some terms and conditions to do two things. One, to make you promise not to run out to the patent office and swear you invented it. (laughs) That helps. And then two, uh, we do a quick sanction nations check just to make sure we're complying with local laws and regulations. But beyond that, you download the spec and you're free to use it at any volume you want. Um, The only thing you can't do is if you haven't certified your installation, you can't use our logo, but you're certainly welcome to use our spec as much as you would like. All right. So once an entity decides to join FDX, are there mandatory financial contributions they are expected to make periodically? Well, again, two things. One, there's obviously you sign the member agreement, which basically protects the intellectual property of other firms who are working in the space. You're in meetings, you're talking about technical items. Uh, Two, you have your dues to pay. And again, they're minimal, uh, just enough to keep the lights on. Right. And three, we do have a code of conduct that says, hey, you're going to act in you know, good faith efforts in dealing with everybody else. Um, and that's effectively it. A lot of success of not-for-profits, and they're, they're a lot like a potluck dinner. And that is they're only as good as what the members bring. Yeah, exactly. And our, our job as staff, our servant leaders, is to effectively set the table and clean up. Right. That's good. So let's get into the specifics of the activities FDX performs. What is FDX doing at the moment to ensure the unification of financial standards around open banking and APIs? Well, one of the things you can do is, again, I mentioned best idea wins in our working groups, is to build a better mousetrap. Right. The other thing you need to do is pay attention to what's going on around the planet. So one of the things I would call out, there's a lot of uh, homogeneity or uh, similarity in the security standards around the planet. So if you look at UK open banking, PSD2 in Europe, STET, uh, FAPI, uh, Australian CDR, 
uh, there are some of the Brazilian specs. They're all pretty much centralized on the common security, right? Right. The OpenID Connect extension onto OAuth 2, uh, JSON request response against a RESTful API, and then reusing these in the client or the host security stack for authenticating consumers. That's pretty uniform throughout the planet. And I think therein lies the key. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, but we went shopping the planet when we put the spec together and we looked at best in class for everything. All right. So when you talk about the unification of financial industry standards, what are the existing standards that you are trying to unify? One of the things that's different is what data fields are present. For example, in most places, they're payment centric. Right. And so the API looks at payment capable accounts, checking, savings, known as current accounts in most jurisdictions, and credit cards. That's great. Um, in other jurisdictions, though, that aren't payment centric, uh, and they're looking at getting rid of those held away credentials, you look instead at what data is being scraped, what data is being extracted for fintech apps. And lo and behold, it's auto loans, mortgages, uh, retirement accounts, uh, 401ks, investment accounts, uh, and a variety of other account types. And so uh, we're in the latter case. So we looked at what data is currently being accessed on this 25-year-old model. And so we have a much broader data set than most other jurisdictions that are focused almost exclusively on payments. Now, that being said, FDX doesn't currently support payments. It's a read-only API. Um, we do have uh, payment capabilities is in our roadmap, but what we were looking at from a risk-based view, the shortest critical path of getting held away credentials in North America out was to replicate what was being scraped. So that's why we're focused on a broad set of data. I see. So are these standards applicable across different regions, say Europe and North America? They're very applicable. And they, again, uh, because they're all uh, JSON request response, because at the end of the day, banking data is banking data. Right. You have an account. It's a numeric field. It's a currency value. <laughs> you have a date, et cetera. Transaction description is ASCII text. So in a lot of ways, it's very similar. Um, there's a lot of overlap. So that's the good news. Uh, and I, I think you will see a merging of standards over time it, it coming together because, again, there's only so many ways you can represent a checking account. Exactly. So the understanding I'm getting is that once these unified standards are finalized, they are going to be universally applicable irrespective of what jurisdiction a particular entity operates within. Is that the case? Generally, they should be. Um, again, if you think of an API as a loading dock, you still have to decide, well, which bin in your warehouse are you going to have delivered to in what order? So there's an internal mapping that has to be done. Right. Now, each API is a little different. So if you look at the Open Banking uh, ID, uh, UK uh, API, or the STET API, or the uh, Australian CDR API, their loading docks they're all the same height, right? Right. They're all the same security, pretty much. But what's different is how they map to the back end. At the end of the day, they're still loading up checking accounts and savings accounts and that sort of thing. So other than the mapping piece of it, it's very homogenous. Right, I see. So probably the only thing is that whoever is using it in a particular region would have to satisfy their local regulatory requirements as well. Yep, and that's one of the, weird, one of the places FDX differs. Because we're not mandated by any government. We're not under a regulatory regime per se. Uh, right. We simply do what our members want and our members are in multiple jurisdictions. So it's incumbent upon us to make sure that our spec as we write it, as we add new fields, um, is not specific to any jurisdiction, is not US centric, that, that sort of thing. One of the issues, if you if you 
used to teach at university. And one of the things we would do, I would see my undergraduates do is they would write a, a postal code field that would be all numeric. And I said, most of the world has alphanumeric postal codes. And say, oh, it's 10-digit phone number. Well, in North America, yes, but not other places. And so it's just making sure that you don't do any of those rookie mistakes when you're, when you're building out a spec that can be applicable in multiple jurisdictions. All right. So you mentioned PSD2 in your earlier submissions. And really, PSD2 is the pioneer when it comes to open banking standards. Is there any working relationship between FDX and the development of open banking standards, such as PSD2 in Europe? Remember, PSD2 has got quite a bit baked into it. It's got privacy. It's got payment services. And oh, by the way, yes, we want to have the uh, API connectivity or open banking uh, is a subset. Right. Um, you know, in the UK, they stood up an open banking implementation entity for the execution of it as sort of a, a quasi-autonomous non-governmental unit of Quango to do that. Um, they made the large banks you know, fund it, pay for it. Um, we're here. We don't have uh, a mandate. So the member organizations funded that. Uh, we do talk to other groups around the world. We have a relationship with OpenID Foundation, um, who created or promulgated the FAPI security spec, the extension onto OAuth 2.0. We do talk to other groups like FIDO and, and, and other groups, the Kantara for uh, initiative for uh, consent receipts. The idea is we don't want to reinvent the wheel at any time. If somebody has something working, let's reuse it. Exactly, right. So in the U.S. in particular, there are no set standards to govern open banking. What the regulatory bodies have done is to allow the private sector to drive this change. In developing a unified open banking standard, are you in communication with regulators for guidelines as to what needs to be done, what is acceptable, and what is not acceptable? We absolutely are. That is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, The regulators are engaged, and we brief them regularly on what's going on, what we're seeing. Again, if you look in their mandate, quite often it's even chiseled into the wall of their building, is to man, you know, reduce the risk or manage risk to the financial ecosystem. Right. And so to the extent that you have a market-based system that doesn't cost the taxpayer a dime, doesn't cost the consumer a dime, that is working to reduce the risk and volatility in the ecosystem, this is a good thing. So uh, back when travel was allowed pre-COVID, um, right. we, we were meeting with the various alphabet soup regulators. Um, and invariably, they'd say that why would wind up every session with them like, good job, carry on, keep us informed. That's the last comment every time we would go. <laughs> and that's good. And I, I do want to give them a shout out. Um, they've shown a lot of maturity and restraint. Exactly. Uh, and saying, okay, keep us informed. But the idea of, okay, the market seems to be handling this for now. We're going to let them you know, keep an eye on it, but let it go and not uh, resist the urge to just jump in. Um, so that said, they've shown quite a bit of, I, I want to say, regulatory maturity in that. Exactly. That is one thing I'm very proud of about our regulators. They are allowing the private sector to drive that change before they come in with regulations to fix any loopholes. And given that open banking is still evolving, it is difficult to come up with a comprehensive regulation for industry to follow. Well, there's some wonderful things that have come out of that. And I'll give you two examples. One, Experian Boost. Right. Um, you know, the whole idea of, you know, I came from a military banking background and you have some new recruit who, you know, a year or two into his or her service, no real credit history, but you know they're getting paid by direct deposit from the government. They print the money and they're never late. So right. ostensibly, they should be a great credit risk, but with no score, you know, they can't buy that that vehicle they want to buy in their first duty station. Exactly but they've been paying their cell phone bill or their rent or whatever else, like clockwork. They should get credit for that. And this you know, obviously allows that to happen in real time. 
Um, another good example is under new account opening or credit decisioning. Imagine today, if you were to apply for a mortgage, the lender wants to know about your other financial relationships. You have to uh, download uh, forms, the old statements, PDFs. You fax them in, you scan them in, you email them in. All right. The receiver then has to rekey them or use optical character recognition, OCR, both of which have errors. Um, they're not perfect. Um, in addition, we saw in 2008, occasionally customers alter documents, just saying. <laughs> so what if you could get the, the data directly from that bank and no chain of custody issues? What if you could get it in machine ingestible format so you didn't have to make decisions about, well, what does this field mean on this statement versus this other statement? Well, now I've eliminated errors, the OCR and Reiki errors. I've increased the speed because it's real time. It's free. And I've reduced chain of custody. So I'm getting better data faster, cheaper. I can make a much more accurate lending decision much faster. Right. Right. For free. How cool is that? Yeah, that's very interesting. It's definitely going to make the turnaround time for loan processing faster than it used to be. Absolutely. Right. So this would be a good point to start talking about the benefits of open banking. Can you share with us some of the benefits consumers stand to gain from open banking? Well, they do a variety of things. One, the consumers are already making use of data sharing. Let's be clear. For the past 20, 25 years, people have used it to feed bookkeeping uh, software, to feed tax prep software, to feed other budgeting software. So they've been doing that already. What we're doing is basically modernizing it. And so getting away from the old paradigm um, and you know, getting away from sharing your IDs and passwords. All right. So that's the good news. We we know that when we talk to banks and brokerages, roughly about 10%, it's kind of Moore's law of data sharing, roughly 10% of a, a, an FI's customers have given up their ID or password to one or more apps. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So it's it's out there. It's a known issue. And you, you can't ignore it. It's like I said, it's been there for 20 some odd years. You kind of have to do something about it. So to the extent that we're improving the speed, the accuracy, the availability of data, and reducing the risk to everyone in the ecosystem. It's a benefit to everyone. Right. So for financial services companies, what is the real benefit for them to sign on to use these APIs? Well, it's twofold. One, it's the realization that, yes, you've had data, your consumer data going out for 20 some odd years. It's not going away. So what can we do to uh, minimize the risks, to manage those risks? And at the end of the day, any organization, effectively, their job is risk management, whether it be market risk, currency risk, whatever. So this is just one more set of data risks that you can help manage. Uh, right. Two, the extent that you can move data off, the, scraping off your front door into a dedicated API, um, it's an order of magnitude more efficient. So you need less hardware to support the same volume. Less hardware means less cost. So better risk posture, better cyber posture, lower hardware cost. And oh, by the way, the spec is royalty free to use. It's not a bad deal. Right. That is very good. So one issue surrounding all this is the ethics of data collection and usage. With APIs on board through open banking, financial institutions as well as third-party fintechs are going to have access to a lot more financial information. Can consumers trust these third parties to protect their financial information? And if so, what are the ethics surrounding the data usage? Well, a couple of things. One, um, you, we mentioned banks you, and brokerages and investment companies and that sort of thing. They've been handling customer data and, and their, their money for, for decades. Exactly. With respect to sharing data and being a good steward of it, at the end of the day, we have in our five data principles in there, uh, control, access, transparency, traceability, and security. The idea is 
you do what you say and say what you do. Exactly. You know, you know, it's it is when you download a budgeting app and say, okay, hey Frank, you're going to share your statement data and transaction data for this account for the purpose of budgeting for the next year until you renew it. You know, what data for whom, through whom, for what purpose, and for how long? There you go. You've made an informed decision. End of the day, the customer's part of it, and as long as the customer's in control and has access and there's transparency in it. I think everybody wins. Right. The Clearinghouse did a survey a couple of years ago and asked consumers, hey, how concerned are you and how much do you really need to feel in control of things and drive the ship? And roughly 80% of the responders said, I absolutely want to see what's going on and have control of that, be able to pull the chain and stop the bus if I need to. Right. That is very good. So continuing with the discussion on the risk management aspect of APIs, how do we ensure that fraudsters or hackers do not game the authentication system used in open banking? Well, you remember the connection that we're going to have between a data requester and you know an app or through an aggregator and a financial institution is now set up as a you know very much like a vendor uh, connection to NFI. So it's going to be an enterprise grade type security. You're going to have mutual TLS. You're going to have uh, a, a certain minimum certificate length. It's going to be HTTPS. Um, you're going to have things like you know, standard firewall rules, access control lists. The tokening itself, even once you have you know, the actual connectivity, then you still have to have, and I think of it like those missile keys you see in the movie, you have to have a token from that it allows ac- logical access from the data requesting app. You also have to then have for which API and then for which data element on the customer level. So you have those three missile tokens that have to turn. Any one of those that's missing, you can't you know, pull data. Right. So as you go up that OSI model level from physical security all the way up to application level, there are controls at every level. Right. Again, we shopped the planet when we put this together. Um, we didn't build this in a vacuum. And so we were able to look at, for example, the NIST cybersecurity uh, model as you know, really the foundation of our cyber posture. We looked at you know, authentication. We looked at what was happening worldwide. We looked at biometrics for FIDO. And we, I think we've built really the best in, in class for that. And we're constantly evolving because threats and tools constantly evolve. Exactly. So should there be data agreements between financial institutions and third-party API providers on data retention and deletion policies to safeguard customer information? I think that's when you've got any two parties agreeing to share data, they're going to have to have some agreements spelling out what responsibilities they have to each other. Right. Um, And the market is a tremendous enforcer uh, of uh, good policy. And I'll give you an example. If I'm a CPA by trade, but I haven't done a return in years, but once I've filed your tax return, any data I have about that tax return, including any credentials I have at your, your FI, are net liability. I've already filed your return. I've been paid. I really don't need to hold everything. So right. unless there's some regulatory reason for you know retaining data, you need to get rid of it. And, and so the market is a tremendous uh, enforcer of a lot of that. That being said, I think uh, common bilateral agreements between two parties also spell out that. And data minimization is a key tenant of the NIST cybersecurity framework. And it's something we talk about routinely in our authentication security working groups. Right. So should financial institutions have the liberty to block any API from accessing customers' financial information whenever a breach is identified? Or is this something to be enforced by regulators? Do parties that are sharing data should work together. Um, to the extent that they can, they will. But 
like I said, when you've got groups together working on a common standard and a common framework and common security policies, I think they're in good shape. Now, God forbid, let's say there's an issue, you know, Don Frank's fintech app, (laughs) you know, we're doing great. We've got a nice little, we've got a, you know, 10 million tokens to access data. And then we have a patching error. Oh my gosh, we've got a breach. Anyone we talk to in the chain should be able to stop and say, no, we're going to revoke all Don and Frank's uh, access until Don and Frank patch their system. I see. Um, I think that's fair uh, because, again, it's on us to maintain a certain level of uh, governance. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's very good. That's certainly very important and it will put customers at ease with respect to giving APIs access to their financial information. Absolutely. So how will FDX impact the privacy and transparency of financial data? Well, remember, transparency is one of our five pillars. The idea is if you're aware of what data is moving and you've you know, consented very clearly to what data you want to share and for what purpose, um, and we have data minimization as a theme throughout the whole data sharing, um, I think it helps out quite a bit because when you have the minimum data set in play, and again, uh, you reduce your risk. When a customer is in control and can see things and where they permission their data and can turn it off, um, I think it's important. And you're seeing, starting to see things like data dashboards. So if you look at PNC or Wells Fargo's Control Tower, uh, Bank of America Security Center, and other FIs, they'll actually show you, hey, you've permissioned XYZ app and ABC app over here to share data, and you can kill the access at any time. Right. I think it's important. Uh, and I think it's better for everybody to very clearly spell all that out. And transparency, I think, is the precursor to privacy because how can you keep something private if you don't know what you have and where where you've got it? Right. So to this end, will FDX propose a liability framework for the financial data ecosystem? Well, good question. Um, right now, worldwide, and even under the government-regulated regimes, consumers who experience any loss still go to their financial institution to be made whole and then... In some jurisdictions, they, they the parties try to settle up. And um, I think uh, over time, there's going to have to be some market-based solution to that. Um, I, one of the neat things about having a very transparent system um, that's market-driven is I, I think we're probably best positioned to help the market move forward with that. Because if we get transparency and traceability right, um, I, I think those are necessary precursors um, so that every subway stop along the way is clearly identified and every subway stop can then uh, be evaluated based on what they're handling and how much they're handling. So I I think the market will eventually solve that. The market has solved it in other industries as well. Right. uh, Over time in in manufacturing industry, um, in tech. So I I think the market will eventually, if there's a need for it, and I believe long-term there will be uh, for, for making sure at apportioning liability. I think the market will deliver that, whether it's through FDX or some other firm. Right. So what is the adoption rate of open banking in North America? And when are we going to see a broader participation by all players in the financial services industry? Um, I hate to break the news to you, but we're live today. We've got 12 million consumers who've already begun their migration away from held away credentials and tokenizing their access. And that number is growing. The number of firms in FDX is growing. I see. Um, Everyone realizes that we need to move away from this 25, 22-year-old legacy model onto this modern uh, credentialist model, this modern API model. And so it's gaining momentum because you don't want to be the, the one firm that isn't doing that. Exactly. Uh, when, you're, when your risk committee, when your privacy offer asks, asks you, hey, what are we doing about this? Aren't we part of this? You don't want to be the ones that uh, no. Right. That is good to know. 
In terms of risk management, how should financial institutions step up to align their risk management framework to accommodate open banking? Well, one, I'd love for them to go out to financialdataexchange.org and download our spec and look at it. Uh, Look at our fellow members and a lot of other peers already there, whether you're a bank, brokerage, or a fintech, uh, or even academics. Again, we have quite a a few uh, PhDs that are involved as well. Um, Understanding what you have. I think anyone who's uh, managing risk needs to understand what assets or what value is at risk. Exactly. What are those risks? What controls do we have today and what is that residual risk? And if it's not an acceptable level and there are free controls that can help mitigate that risk to get you to a lower residual risk, why wouldn't you? But I would argue you do that in any aspect of your business. All right. So coming to the end of our discussion, when should we expect the FDX API standard to be finalized? When we talk to our members and we get an estimate of, of how many credentials are in play in the ecosystem, you know, the number we come up with, you know, in, inference wise, and we have to, for any competitive reasons, we can't get hard numbers, is around 100 million. Um, we've got about 12 million of those converted. So there's another 88 to 90 million left to go. And just in North America. I see. And again, uh, as folks become more digitized, that, that denominator is going to grow because uh, COVID has been a great interesting forcing function for uh, moving people who are physical bankers to, you know, I'm going to start depositing my checks online. I'm going to go online. And so it's, it's, it takes some of the digitally hesitant and made in digital adopters. So the population we think uh, will grow. So that 88 to 100 will probably grow. Um, this is new entrance into the digital space and that's fine, but we're only moving as fast as our members want to go. One of the questions we always get asked is, well, when will this be there? And I said, well, we're starting. <laughs> but remember, I remember on your credit card when it went from Magstripe to Chip? Right. It's been out there for 10 years, the EMV chip. And we're just now getting around to gas stations. We're just now getting around to small providers. And no one in their right mind any along the way, and by the way, that was a market-driven solution. Um, and we knew Magstripe had its issues, and it was 40-some-odd years old. But no one said, hey, let's stop all Magstripe. Let's just stop all commerce. Remember, I still have 80 million people who are benefiting from sharing their data, and no one is suggesting we cut everybody off um, and and do this. So we're making a very pragmatic, uh, very uh, risk-averse migration that, again, won't put anyone else at any undue risk, but we're doing it very cautiously, very pragmatically throughout the ecosystem. And we've seen that before. You know, we're seeing that EMV card, when online banking rolled out, Online making 1.0 was just your balance. I'm that old. <laughs> um, you know, people think of it today, oh, it's a robust suite. I can move money. It's in a virtual branch. It's wonderful. 1.0 in the early 2000s, late 90s was just your balance, maybe your last 30 days of transactions just for checking. And so it's, it's slowly over time, but there was no mandate for that either. But there was a market need for that. And we're seeing the market need driving this very organically very cautiously, very safely. And that's, I think, a good metaphor, both EMV and online banking rollouts. And by the way, we're moving faster than those curves. Our curves is is steeper, but it's still organic. Right. That is very good and refreshing. So how do institutions reach out to you if they need any guidance on their open banking journey or they need to be part of the financial data exchange? We'd love to introduce anyone to our member firms, provide reference clients. Again, we're not selling anything, so we're not for profit. Uh, if they come to our website, financialdataexchange.org, 
They can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. But really, we'd love to have them at the table. It's a big tent. And it's open for everybody. Exactly. All right. That's very good. Thank you very much, Don. It's been very nice talking to you and sharing these valuable insights with us. My pleasure. Happy to do that. Subscribe to the Risk Experience podcast and thank you for listening.